I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Today, what we're going to start off is is, is looking at the labor force. Um, so next week, we should hear the the June unemployment labor numbers. You know, we're going to talk in a second about the Uber Eats and Postmates deal. But, you know, what, what brought me about thinking about that was looking at some information here. It's called the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. And so when you think about unemployment benefits, unemployment benefits are for people that are no longer employed, which means that they used to be employed and were a W-2 worker. There's two types of uh, labor classifications in the U.S. You're a W-2 employee uh, or you are a 1099 contractor, right? We've spoken many, many times on the show about how actually a need for a new class of labor worker. Um, we had, uh, we've had some guests on the show to talk about this. We've spoken about California AB5 law, which was supposedly there to help the uh, gig workers, but it was really a far cry from doing that. And I, I think that was really just a facade, a sham. And instead, just wanted California wanted to, to get more money for itself um, at really the expense of the gig economy workers. Anyway, so we've spoken about the need for a third classification of labor worker because the rules for 1099 have been around for decades. And the way that contract employees work with platforms, which is basically these gig economy workers, is different. And we've spoken about that many times on the show. So anyway, there are about 30 million people unemployed in the United States. Um, in February of 2020, before Corona, we had maybe around 160, 165 million people in the labor force. There's actually a record high number of people working in the labor force. Unemployment measures the number of people actively or, you know, or trying to look for a job, you could still be out of the workforce, but not technically looking for a job and not be considered unemployed. So that's a whole other thing in terms of what do these, you know, what, what do these different metrics from the Department of Labor mean? But just for this conversation, we're going to talk about unemployment rates. So there's about 30 million people total unemployed in the United States as of mid-June when the last reading of numbers came out, 17.6 million of those were collecting regular state benefits. Uh, what that means is those would be W-2 employees, which no, lo- no longer have a job, i.e. they're unemployed, and now they qualify for traditional unemployment insurance, unemployment benefits that come from the state. Now you have... According to this, with this pandemic unemployment assistance program, about 12.9 million Americans uh, are collecting unemployment benefits through this program. So what is this program? The PUA basically provides a support system, kind of like unemployment insurance, unemployment benefits, as if you were a W-2 employee and you no longer have work, but it's for people that would be contractors many of whom would be gig economy workers, right? So that means you work for Uber and you drive for Uber, you work for Uber Eats or Instacart or Lyft or any of these, you know, gig economy uh, platforms, or let's say you're a contractor on Angie's List, right? I mean, uh, or or any of the handy, 
right? Any of these uh, kind of like labor service marketplaces, right? There's trucking marketplaces. There's marketplaces for uh, working on oil rigs called Uprig. They've raised hundreds of millions of dollars, right? So you're seeing these kind of gig economy, labor marketplace, service marketplace uh, companies, small and large, you know, public like an Uber. So if you work for them, you get paid as a 1099 contractor. Now, that means that you don't pay the same amount of monies into unemployment programs, right? So when you're a W-2 employee, you look at your, your, your pay stub, you will see that you are paying money in for unemployment benefits. Uh, and so is the company. So uh, companies that are paying W-2 employees, they're paying payroll taxes. And as a part of those payroll taxes, they're putting in dollars for uh, unemployment wages and, and an allocation, right? So that money kind of goes into, into an account and accrues. And the state and the federal government can draw down from that to provide these unemployment benefit programs, right? So it's, it's offset by the employee and the employer. 1099 programs are different. That's why we saw in California, the AB5 law was trying to force more 1099 workers to be classified as W-2 employees. Why? Because California wanted to get more money. More money from whom, would you ask? Well, one would be employers, as I mentioned. 1099 contractors, the employer doesn't pay payroll taxes, right? So you're the state isn't getting that money. Now, some of that is offset by the 1099 contractor and, and the monies that they're paying, but it's not the same. Net-net, you'll make more money as the state if you're getting W-2 fees, both from payroll taxes from the employer, A, and B, uh, just compliance. So it's much harder to enforce a 1099 contractor. You know, are they actually paying the right amount of money? Is that, is that money actually flowing through back to the state uh, as it should be or the city, et cetera? So um, enforcement and payroll taxes would be my overgeneralization of why states want more employees to be classified as W-2 employees rather than 1099 workers. Reason why this is important is because now the federal government, because of coronavirus, has put this PUA program into existence. And so it's providing dollars for these contractor workers uh, that no longer have jobs. So 31.5 million, that's the total stat as of mid-June. We got a little chart here. This chart is not actually comparing apples to apples, not surprisingly these days. Um, so it's saying, hey, look at the unemployment rate uh, as a percentage of the overall labor force. We've got that 160, 165 million stat right from February. You got about 25% in the peak of um, the Great Depression back in the you know early 1930s. Now they say, hey, April 20, we hit 14.7%. June, we're down to 11%. That 11% stat is only looking at the 17.6 million Americans collecting regular state unemployment benefits, i.e. the W-2 workers now unemployed. Now, that is apples to apples in that respect. But if we want, you know, what didn't exist in the 1930s and what does exist in the 2020s are these things called platform business models. And these platform business models are kind of powerful, um, which means that that's why you get a huge 
We don't exactly know, but that's why you have a, a huge amount of these roughly 13 million people on this PUA program are qualifying for this assistance. So what they need to do is, uh, I went to, I checked out some of these um, sites. So you would go to, um, for example, you know, this is California's site and it tells you a bunch of Q&A about what you're eligible for and all these kinds of things. Here's the breakdown of money. So. Um, you can get $167 per week um, starting February 2nd of 2020 through basically the end of this year uh, through December of 2020. Um, from March 29th through July 25th, you can get an additional $600 per week, right? So basically through the end of July of 2020, if you're put out for work because of coronavirus. Now, these are the minimum payments. If you submit your um, let's say your your tax filing or you know your um, proof of income that you would put on your your taxes or whatever maybe you can prove in 2019 that you were making more than 17 yeah seventeen thousand three hundred sixty eight dollars then you will get more than that hundred sixty seven dollar per week stipend basically right the maximum is four hundred fifty dollars per week and you need to be making more than a $46,700 to qualify for that, right? So it's basically saying, hey, if you were making more than $47,000 annually in 2019, you can get the $450 a week in unemployment benefits from this PUA program. Now, you're an independent contractor. You're a gig economy worker. You didn't have to pay into that program. This is, this is the only reason this is happening. Technically, this money is being coming from the state, uh, but that money is ultimately being underwritten by the federal government. And we're doing this because it's a pandemic and an emergency and, and all these kinds of things. Uh, but there is no model for contractors, 1099 employees to pay into a program like this to provide one of the big benefits of being a W-2 employee versus 1099 is that you have unemployment protection, right? So that doesn't exist for 1099 contractors outside of this current uh, pandemic. So it's just very interesting if we think about this part of the labor pool, its expansion since the 1930s, you look at this article here saying, oh, well, you know, in June, we had 11% um, of the labor force was unemployed. Actually, net-net, when you, when you include the full number of both the W-2 unemployed people and the 1099 unemployed people, uh, you're actually around 18, 19%. So it's actually not as pretty as 11. Now, there's variance in that, right? You don't really know of the 13 million people um, that... Uh, you know, that, that are on PUA benefit programs, were they working full-time or they, you know, were they working full-time, but doing gig economy work, getting paid as a 1099 contractor, or were they, you know, working five or 10 hours a week here or there, which according to Uber is the, actually the average amount of time that, that a driver drives for them on a weekly basis is I think 10 hours, right? It's very like supplemental income. Um, so it'd be interesting. We don't understand exactly full of that 13 million people. Um, to what degree are these people out of work? It's certainly for for a material amount of them uh, is certainly going to be a, a, a material impact to them. But the point is, 
we're much higher than 11% because our economy and our labor force makeup is very different than how it was 90 years ago, you know, as you kind of look at these, these uh, charts. So again, it, the platform economy um, skewing a lot of these traditional metrics. We've spoken about this before on the show, how I think inflation uh, calculations are skewed because they're not, they're not factoring in um, the, the platform dynamics that are coming in. We've spoken about unemployment rates being skewed. This is another, I think, great example um, of that. So the last point on this is you have this gig economy, you have crazy unemployment, but at the same time, you have Plat, uh, the platform ETF that Wisdom Tree launched, and we helped them launch, is at all time highs. I think today it closed at thirty four dollars and nineteen cents. I mean, it's uh, yeah, today was an all time high. It's on fire. So these platform businesses just continue to outperform as we see. Corona as an accelerant for digital behaviors. Um, and that's not slowing down. So the economy is rebounding, hopefully uh, not temporarily, but permanently. And you have a huge shift to digital and the, and the platform businesses are, are benefiting. Um, hard to ignore that truth. Whether the whole, whole stock market and the trillions and trillions of dollars that the Fed is pumping into the economy have artificially inflated, the prices of stocks, yeah, that may also be the case, but that's a conversation for another time. Um, much deeper topic there. But it is very disconcerting if you look at how much of the Fed, U.S. Fed treasuries, uh, or U.S. treasuries that the Federal Reserve owns <clears throat> pre and post this, this uh, pandemic and just the size of their balance sheet, they say they're fine with it. Uh, it's very disconcerting to me. I think the the short answer on it is I want to say pre two thousand eight they had maybe a I, I'm pretty sure they had a a sub trillion dollar balance sheet. I, I want to say around five hundred billion dollars. I could be wrong. Pretty sure sub trillion dollar balance sheet. I think the most recent stat on their balance sheet. I think it's over seven trillion dollars. So that's a pretty big delta over the past. 12 years that they have just magically, they have the best app of all time. It's called the print money app. And actually, I think one of the Federal Reserve chairmen referred to it exactly like that. They just go into this little thing and they say, oh, I'll take another trillion dollars. Literally, boom, printing money. They don't even need to print it. Just digital zeros that they add onto their bank account. Anyway, uh, more to come on that. I, th that needs a whole couple topics in and of itself. Let's look at Uber doing a measly $2.6 billion acquisition compared to, compared to the Fed's numbers here. Um, $2.6 billion, all stock deal. Uh, Uber missed out on the, um, on the Grubhub acquisition and, um, and now we're going after Postmates. The, there needs to be consolidation Instead of having a Grubhub Uber Eats consolidation, now you have three independent players, DoorDash, Grubhub, which merged with Just Eats uh, in Europe, and now Uber Eats and Postmates. So now you have three players. This was the kind of compilation of their demand. Basically, you see Postmates is really strong in LA, um, really strong, I mean, not really strong, kind of strong in Phoenix, 
and Miami, but Uber Eats is already 62% of the Miami market. Um, Phoenix, now now Uber Eats and Postmates are going to have 43% of that. They're going to be, they're going to have parity with um, DoorDash. So, you know, this is a, uh, this is a, this is a mild, yeah, it's a small deal. Um, it makes sense, but the bigger opportunity was with Grubhub. It, it's still kind of uh, confuses me, it baffles me a little bit why that deal didn't get done with Uber Eats and Grubhub. Maybe there was some ego and some cultural issues. Maybe Matt Maloney, CEO of Grubhub, didn't really like Dara, didn't like Uber. The Grubhub Just Eats deal continues to confuse me. It makes sense why Just Eats did the deal. But for Grubhub and... You know, I don't know. It, it, it's all kinds of kind of bewilderment uh, with that deal. Uh, the Postmates deal is minor. It's all stock deal. And the interesting thing, there's this uh, CNBC interview here. I don't want, you don't need to listen to it. The The interesting thing from the interview was that she said that Dara, uh, the CEO of Uber, said they're going to have 100% year over year growth in Q2 for Uber Eats. And I think that's pre-Postmates numbers, right? But let's look at Q1 of Uber Eats. So this is Q1 2019. They did about $3 billion GMV in Uber Eats. Okay. Q, Q1 2020, they did 4.6, almost $4.7 billion in GMV. So you had about a 50% year-over-year growth. That means they're definitely going to be doing well over $6 billion in GMV. Uber Eats is in Q2 of 2020. That is a substantial growth. Now, ride sharing, we don't know, we don't know what the uh, what the downswing on ride sharing is going to be. You know, the interesting thing if you look at these two stocks is you've got Lyft here. Look, I mean, Lyft is up 4.4% today, Uber is up 6% today. And the market overall was up about 2%. Why do Lyft and Uber track so closely to each other, right? Like Lyft has no de- food delivery exposure. So Lyft is at a $10 billion market cap. Uber's at 40, uh, $56 billion market cap. You, you look at the performance of these stocks and uh, it, it just can, that, this is another thing that just continues to confuse me is how closely these two, two stocks um, kind of mimic each other, but very different businesses in, in the sense of how strong this Uber Eats business has become a part of Uber, uh, of, of Uber the platform conglomerate. So if you're, if you're looking here, if you're going to have $6 billion at least in GMV Q2 of 2020 for Uber, and I, I can guarantee you they're going to have less than Eleven billion dollars in G in GMV for uh for ride sharing, that's for sure. I think that's going to be a pretty big hit. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is getting parity that by I mean Uber Eats with now the Postmates deal. It's hard to understand exactly how much GMV Postmates has. Um. You know, if we look at some of the multiples like GMV to valuation multiples pre-coronavirus, it was about a 1.6. Again, 
It's a rough number here. It's about a 1.6, kind of using DoorDash. Look at DoorDash's latest uh, uh, $600 million fundraise last year, 2019. They raised $600 million, I think roughly a $12 billion valuation. They were doing about $7.5 billion in GMV. You had about a 1.6 multiple of GMV to uh, valuation. So if you look at, I don't know, you know, if you guesstimate here on Postmates, under $2 billion, they, interesting enough on Postmates is they raised $2.4 billion fall of 2019. They're now getting acquired um, at 2.6. So their valuation has pretty much stayed the same, which means to me that the growth, especially because of Corona um, and, the, and the shift to digital has benefited the dominant platform players in, in uh, food delivery like Uber Eats, DoorDash, Grubhub, and Postmates has kind of muddled along. But even if you say DoorDash has, say, $1.5 billion in GMV, Uber Eats is doing over $6 billion in, G, in, in, um, in GMV. This is quarterly, mind you. Um, so if they're adding... I don't know, four or five hundred million dollars. Anyway, this number could be getting close to seven billion dollars on a quarterly basis for Uber Eats, which is uh, it, which is going to start to have a lot of parity with their ride sharing business because that's going to take a considerable hit. So it'll be really interesting to see Uber's earnings in in the in in a few weeks. Here, we'll be sure to cover that and and do some more deep dives on that. So the sad note, we well, the positive note is. I hope everyone had a great 4th of July, had a wonderful time celebrating the independence of America. Um, unfortunately, right around the same period of time as we were celebrating our independence here, you could also be bemoaning the um, national security law, which China passed to um, Basically, you know, one more stake in the ground to assert their control over Hong Kong. The reason why that relates to platforms is you now have um, Facebook, WhatsApp, Twitter suspending their review of Hong Kong requests for user data. Basically, you know, countries can request these data reviews from the platform companies. because Facebook has zero servers, zero exposure to China. Um, that was a decision by Zuckerberg to say, we're not going to have any, we're not going to have any of our data. We're not going to have any of our servers in China. He, he never wanted to cross that line. I give him, I give him tremendous props for that. So um, Twitter also followed suit. Basically now they're saying we are going to treat Hong Kong just like we treat China. If China gives us a request uh, to to look into these users, we ignore it, and now they're going to do the same thing for Hong Kong, which is because of this national security law, which China just passed right around uh, um, the past week. We're going to talk about that in a second, but you know, I thought this was interesting. Where uh, Apple, which has a huge amount of exposure to China, it's a huge market for them. And they disclose, the tech companies disclose what countries are, are submitting these kind of user data requests and what percent of them they comply with and don't comply. Basically, whatever the stat was for Apple is over 80% of the um, user data requests from China did they comply with. Apple did. 
And that's just because they have so much exposure to the Chinese market. They have to capitulate. And, uh, you know, they, they can't put up too much of a fight if the Chinese government wants something from them. The, you know, unfortunate thing about this, and actually not a lot of these articles are, I mean, this is the BBC, um, are doing a very good job of explaining this and why this is so devastating and really unprecedented is because when Hong Kong was passed over to, uh, from the British to China in 1999, there was a 50 year transitionary rule and law and treaty. 2020 is not 50 years later than 1999. So we made it, not we, China made it 21 years uh, into a 50 year agreement to have this peaceful transition, which meant that it, it, this treaty provided Hong Kong a certain uh, amount of self-sustainability, of autonomy, of the ability to, you know, elect its own kind of prime minister and govern itself to a certain degree, right? And as, as we all know, Hong Kong has been a huge financial hub. There's a lot of platform stocks that were listed or were slash are listed in the United States and have now done secondary listings um, in Hong Kong. You've seen Hong Kong as a financial powerhouse. Um, you've seen Hong Kong be treated separately by these tech companies uh, like Facebook and Twitter, for example. And now a lot of that's going away in terms of uh, Hong Kong's freedom and access to capital, international access to capital. Hong Kong's sovereignty in in relation to say tech companies and their relationship with tech companies like this Facebook, Twitter uh, um, policy change here that I'm talking about, and re- really why this is is because this Chinese Hong Kong security law is basically um, asserting even more control over Hong Kong by China. Twenty nine years accelerated um, against what was laid out in this treaty. So it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate for, you know, the, the freedoms of the Hong Kong people um, and, and how, how technology companies, capital markets can relate and access Hong Kong and, and, and the people and companies listed there. So um, it's an unfortunate turn of events. And I think it's just another sign here that you're seeing, you're seeing this decoupling. Splinternet, I think TPG, the private equity firm, is calling it. Um, you know, the way they frame it is there aren't just two internets. There's actually a myriad of different internets across the geopolitical landscape. So you have kind of U.S. and China on either ends of that spectrum. But now you're seeing different governments like India. Last episode we just spoke about India um, banning 59 Chinese apps. So you're starting to see now this Splinternet. Uh, a spectrum of splinter nets and Hong Kong now basically falling into the, the bucket of China, but that means a huge decoupling of tech companies. Um, the, the apps that can run there, right. Uh, India's India's explanation as to why they banned these apps was they said, well, if we can't run our apps and our tech companies in China, but the Chinese apps and tech companies can run in India, uh, well, that's not fair. And you just brutally murdered 20 of our soldiers in the Himalayan mountains. So um, yeah, we're going to ban these apps. Kind of makes sense, right? So you're seeing this uh, divide on technology. 
there's two axes to technology. There is the hardware and telecom infrastructure, as we've seen with the battle of the Huawei uh, versus like Ericsson. There's some of these European Nokia. So you're seeing that from a technology perspective, that splinter net telecom infrastructure, that hardware that enables connectivity to take place on top of it. The other tranche to that is the software and the data on top of it. So what software companies, TikTok prime example, um, or Facebook going into China, for example, what software companies can provide their software that can be used by the users in that country, and then data localization, what are the rules around where that data needs to be stored and, uh, you know, is it processed? Is it, is it going back into, say, the United States or is it staying in India, for example? Or Europe has a lot of da- data localization rules and laws around where the data needs to be stored and kept in GDPR um, and elsewhere in, in, in their policy quagmire um, that you need to comply with if you're going to operate in Europe. And it's kind of all country by country, not, not just across all the EU. So. These are kind of these two intersecting forces, all just in that technology bucket um, that you're starting to see this fragmentation appear, not just U.S. and China, but now you've got India. We're seeing Europe do certain things. I'm sure there'll be other cases uh, cropping up around the world, and we'll be sure to talk about it here. Really unfortunate to see from a kind of just freedom standpoint uh for this to happen to the hong kong folks not sure there's much that we can do at this point but uh yeah take some reactionary measures as we're seeing these tech companies do so um just another reason to celebrate all the things and and uh and rights that we have here and hope everyone had a great fourth of july and a great start to the week thanks for joining us on winner take all